Paul, what is contact apologetics? How does it work? Contact apologetics is under the umbrella of contact mission. And contact missions is um, an international missions network. We have about 400 missionaries in 60 different countries. And what we do is we encourage personal evangelism, equipping congregations to share their faith uh, convincingly with nonbelievers, and cultural engagement. And one of the main ways we do that is by creating short apologetic videos, 7 to 10 minutes long, on a, an array of topics. In fact, if you would, we've got a, uh, I've got some ministry cards back there with a QR code on it, or you can, I've got a QR code on the back of my shirt. That was my wife's <laughs> idea. You can hold your phone over it. It'll take you to our YouTube channel where we have all our videos. And, uh, they're on different topics like, can we trust the resurrection of Jesus? Can we trust the New Testament of scripture? What do science and Christianity have to do with each other? And we try to translate those videos into as many languages as possible. So we have at least one video in 10 languages already. Wow. We recruit, I create some of the videos. I recruit other scholars, Christian scholars, and then we recruit bilinguals to help us translate and record them. And, uh, we send them around the world, uh, to helping encourage believers and reach uh, non-believers. Okay. Thank you. Contact is spelled with K's. It is because so... it started in Germany back in the seventies. It was just a, a, a missions movement of different people trying to share their faith and plant churches, and it's grown, and it's now around the world in 60 different countries. And you served in Germany for a while, right? My wife and I were missionaries in Germany for a decade. Okay, and I think my son, Tim, was with you for yes, a summer? Yes, he did. Yes, he, he was an intern with us. Okay. Yes. Thank you for doing that. Oh, I thanks for sending him. Very he much. He did a great job. Oh, good. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> Clarence is with us now? Okay. Uh, well, I'll just ask you one other question then. Sure. Because I think everybody has the idea of who you are and what you're, you're going to do. This, he is a family man. You have a wife, Heather, two, two daughters. daughters, one who is a new driver, 16, 16 years old. Fiona. Uh, and uh, Noel will be 12 at the end of this month. Okay. All right. And, uh, yeah, my other question was, you went to school with Ben Hayes. That's how we know you. Yes. Right. And did he ever actually go to class to your recollection? Uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Okay. No. Yes, he did. <laughs> All right. Yes, good. I did. Good. Okay. Well, my daughter, Naomi, when, when she heard that you were going to come, uh, and, uh, speak with us, she said, Oh, I love listening to, uh, to Brett. He takes things that are really hard to understand and makes them to where normal people uh, you know, can, can figure it out. So no pressure. Thank you for, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming and thanks for uh, having me help us. Okay. Thank you. Thank it's you. an honor to be here. Uh, brothers and sisters, I, uh, I, I do. I love apologetics. I love uh, sharing my faith and it, you'll notice in your bulletin, you've got a list of some of the passages we're going to be talking about. That is for your uh, further study. If you're interested in this topic that we'll be discussing today, take it home with you and you can dig deeper into it. In a recent dialogue with an old friend of mine, uh, I was told by my friend Adam that he thought that the mystical and contemplative aspects of Jesus were the most important aspects of Jesus. Not the crucifixion, not his burial, not his resurrection, not his claims to be the son of God, but the reflective and mystical aspects. Now, I should add that my friend Adam had walked away from the uh, the faith, uh, the Christian faith, and has become a Buddhist yoga instructor. So it shouldn't it doesn't surprise me that that is the those are the aspects that he's 
emphasizing now. But the thing about Christianity and the gospel is we can test it. It touches history because it happened in a place in time back about 2000 years ago. And so we can examine it. Christianity and the gospel can be tested. It touches history. Now, I find it interesting and worth pointing out that other religions and worldviews feel a sense of obligation when it comes to Jesus, an obligation to make sense of him along their own worldview lines. And in fact, you might say we we get a version of Jesus that kind of corresponds to every religion or worldview. Everyone wants their version of Jesus on their team. We don't see the religions and worldviews of the globe doing this, however, with other foreign figures as they do with Jesus. So I have to think, is my friend Adam, is his claim true? And how do we find out? How do we find out what the earliest followers of Jesus actually believed about him and taught about him? Luke, in his gospel, reports that Paul, immediately following his conversion, began proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God in Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 30, you, we read, for example, that he immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues where the Jews were, who were awaiting the Messiah, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. It says that he was confounding the Jews. So there was some friction. There was some debate there. He was proving that Jesus is the Christ and that he spoke out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas reported this. And he will eventually go to Jerusalem and do the same thing, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and they even, Luke even uses a word arguing or debating with the Hellenistic Jews. Now, brothers and sisters, we might imagine if we're going to share our faith with other people that presenting the Bible as the authoritative word of God is definitely one way, legitimate way that we can share the gospel, one language, if you will. And there is a time and a place to do that. I believe it's reasonable to remind our skeptic friends that the Bible claims to be the word of God, that it's no accident that the Bible is the all time bestseller and to place the burden of proof on our skeptic friends, encouraging them to read it and find out for themselves if they don't encounter God therein. But brothers and sisters, I believe we can add a second language. We can become bilingual in our apologetic, in our sharing of our faith, in our defense of the faith. In our efforts to help our friends find their way to Jesus Christ. Instead of viewing the Bible as just one source, as just one story, we might also keep in mind that it is a library, a collection of many stories, of many evidences pointing to God's existence and Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to the truth of the gospel. And now, if you're going to introduce your friends to Jesus, and I'm sure a lot of us want to share our, uh, our, our Jesus with our friends, a good place to begin, I'm sure you all agree, is with the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, when I was 16 years old, someone gave me a Bible and encouraged me to read the Gospels. And I remember reading there about 16 years old, 17 years old, and thinking to myself, wow, 
This is true. I can just tell by the way the authors are writing that they want to convince me. They want me to believe that these things actually happened in time and in space. The best place to begin if you want to know Jesus is the Gospels. But here's the thing. The Gospels are not actually our earliest information that we have about Jesus. In fact, I have a sort of a timeline here. I apologize for my chicken scratch, um, but um, I hope you can read it. This is the first century, if you will, year zero up to 100. And we've got some significant uh, events here. Jesus is going to be crucified around 30, and I have the date 70 on here. I failed to mention this in the first service because this is when the temple and the city of Jerusalem are destroyed by the Romans. Very significant events. Now, most scholars, especially skeptical scholars, want to date the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, out here from 70 to 100. And let me say this. If they are right, if the Gospels were written out here, 40 years after Jesus, by ancient standards, that is still very early material. Very, and we, and we can have confidence that it is very reliable because that gap by ancient standards, 40 years, it's actually quite small. But one of the reasons they do that, they put these out here is because in the synoptic gospels, Jesus predicts this event, and they assume, well, you can't have predictive prophecy actually being fulfilled. So it had to have been the church reading that back into the lips of Jesus. Now, most scholars agree, even conservative scholars, that John wrote his gospel later in the first century. There's ample evidence from the early church fathers. But I think we can make a very good case that Matthew, Mark, and Luke can be dated before 70. And here's why. Luke writes two books, his gospel, Luke, and the book of Acts. And at the beginning of Luke, uh, he mentions others who've taken it upon themselves to write up an account. So we know he's at least referring to Matthew and Mark. So Matthew and Mark probably write before Luke. And Luke, in his second book, Acts, one of his main characters, Paul, who we've already mentioned, is still alive at the end of the book. Now, we know from ample evidence in the early church fathers that Luke is going to be executed around the year 67 or 68 under Nero. And so it would seem that the book of Acts, that Luke finishes writing Acts before Paul is executed. Because why wouldn't he tell us about the, the martyrdom of his main, one of his main characters? Well, so if Acts is finished before 67 and 68, well, that pushes Luke back and that pushes Matthew and Mark back. So I think we can narrow that window down even closer. We can probably put the Gospels in the early to mid 60s. But brothers and sisters, that information about Jesus that we have in the Gospels still is not the earliest information we have about Jesus. What are some other things that we have are earlier? Well, we have the epistles, the letters in the New Testament. Paul already began to write his letters around the year 49 or 50, 51 AD. So about 17 to 21 years, depending on when Jesus is, is crucified. Some say 30, some say 33. After Jesus, Paul begins to write his earliest letters. And most scholars agree it's going to either be Galatians or First Thessalonians are the first letters he writes. And here's the thing. If you read the letters of Paul, 
guess what Paul believes about Jesus? That he is the son of God, that he is divine, and that Christians should follow him and, and worship him. He believes that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Because see, our skeptic friends, what they want to do is they want to say, actually the first followers of Jesus didn't worship him as God. That is a later development out here. And so we want to put that to the test and find out, is that true? What does the earliest information about Jesus tell us? And what did his followers believe about him? Did they worship him as the son of God or did, was that a later development? But we see already in Paul's letters starting to be written around 50 and, and some say James might have even be, be earlier because it's so Jewish in nature. We don't know Peter's going to write out here in the book of Hebrews. We already see that Jesus is considered to be Lord, Savior, the Son of God. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. I want to show you today that we can get even closer. We can get even closer. And most scholars recognize embedded in the text are what we have uh, are pretextual. That is, they existed orally before the texts, creeds, confessions, hymns, that is, they sung them, and charismatic material, that is, pretextual oral confessions, creeds, things that the church believed, that they spoke orally, that they taught to one another before they were, before the letters were written, and they get embedded in the text, and that's what I have in the um, bulletin, a list of those. We're not going to look at all of them, but if for your further study, there's a more exhaustive list in here. Now, let me give you some characteristics of these pretextual creeds, confessions, hymns, and charismatic material. Oftentimes, as uh, as we heard in the in the first Corinthians 15 passage, which happens to be the largest one of those, it was no accident that that was chosen for a scripture reading, it will begin with a word like deliver. For I deliver unto you, or confess. Why? Because they had already confessed these things. Or believe. Why? Because the author is affirming, you already believe these things. You already know these things. I'm not writing to you something that you don't know. Rather, I'm affirming something that you've already accepted as true. Before you receive this letter. A lot of times there's a contextual dislocation. The author, will, like Paul, will be writing along and all of a sudden he'll stop and drop one of these things right in there and you can tell. There's often repetition, sort of bullet points, or they're often rhythmical. And that's why many scholars believe these were hymns that they sung. Often there are lines of equal or similar length or structure, and they oftentimes use language not employed elsewhere or differently by the author. And here's the here's probably the most important um, aspect. They contain elementary theology, chiefly regarding the gospel message. So you're going to hear when we look at these a few of these passages today. Notice we're going to hear a lot about the death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, return and the deity of Jesus Christ. That is that he is God core gospel material that we that you and I believe today we're going to see that the early church already believed and affirmed these things within the first decade of its existence. Not a later development, as our skeptical friends want to suggest. Now, you and I today, we how do we find out about Jesus? We read our Bibles. 
We are 2,000 years removed from Jesus, and it might be hard for us, difficult for us to imagine what it would have been like to live in a in the early church where most of the teachings were communicated orally. But just to give you a couple uh, glimpses into that, I want to share 2 Thessalonians 2.15 where Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. So these were things that they had already been taught orally, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And see, for Paul... The traditions were important that they hold to the teachings of the apostles, whether they leaned on the letters that he was writing or that whether they recalled when he had been there and preached those messages. We also have a quote from one of the early church fathers named Papias. And I want to share this with you. Papias is going to live here In the early second century, in fact, he was probably only one or two people removed from the apostle John, who was said to live quite late into the first uh, end of the first century. Papias lived at a time where the New Testament was it had been written, but he still remembered hearing the stories of the apostles. So look what he says here. And he seemed to prefer the oral. He said, if then anyone came who had been a follower of the elders, I questioned him in regard to the words of the elders. What Andrew or what Peter said or what was said by Philip or Thomas or by James or John or by Matthew or by any other of the disciples of the Lord. And what things Aristion and the presbyter John, the disciples of the Lord say, for I did not think that what was to be gotten from the books would profit me as much as what came from the living and abiding voice. You see, he, Papias, living here, still knew what it was like to be in an oral culture where they weren't just relying on the written text, but the stories of the disciples and their teachings were still circulating in the early church. Now, I want to look at a few of these pretextual creeds, confessions, hymns, and charismatic material with you so you can also see and have confidence in what I'm claiming here. One of the first ones we're going to look at comes to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And we said, Paul, most scholars believe, either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians is probably his earliest letter. So we're this is Paul writing maybe just two decades after Jesus dies on the cross. And he writes this, notice, notice the pretextual oral nature to what he's talking about here. He says in verse nine of chapter one, for they themselves, he's referring to the Macedonians who are talking about the Thessalonians, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, brothers and sisters, what we have here is the Macedonian and Achaeans verbal report about the Thessalonians embedded in Paul's letter. And look at the content there. They talk about their faith and their conversion to the one true and living God. They're awaiting the return of his son, Jesus Christ. 
who had been resurrected, who saves us from the coming wrath. And this is already um, existing before 50 as an oral report that Paul had heard. This repeated kerygma must stem to the first two decades of the church. So when we ask, what did the earliest believers believe about Jesus? Well, they believed that he was God, that he had died on the cross, that he was resurrected, and that he's coming back, that he paid for our sins. Guess what? That is the same exact gospel that you and I affirm today. Another one we might look at is at the beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. We read this. Again, notice the core gospel material here. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the fascinating thing about the book of Romans is when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he hasn't been to Rome yet. In fact, he mentions later on in the book, like chapter 15 or 16, that he hopes to stop and preach the gospel on his way to Spain. And so Paul had probably never met the Christian Romans when he's writing this letter. These were probably the descendants of some who had traveled to Pentecost. They accepted Jesus Christ, got baptized, went back to Rome and started the church there. Paul gets converted later and they don't know about him. And so I believe what Paul is doing here, he's dropping one of these pretextual creeds and confessions, these this material that they already believe at the beginning of his letter. So they know, aha, this guy believes in the same Jesus we do. He is a true apostle and he's on the same page as we are. There's no it's no accident that Paul puts this at the beginning of his letter. Another one that has really a whole lot of theological significance comes to us from first Corinthians chapter eight, Paul writing his letter to the Corinthians and, and he here first Corinthians eight verse four, second half of verse four through verse six, we find something quite fascinating because Paul here in this passage is talking about the one true God. And when we when we think about the Old Testament and the Jewish faith and we talk about the one true God, we think about this confession they had known as the Shema Israel. That is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Right. And so Paul has this concept of the one true God here. And look at what he does, starting in the second half of verse four. He says, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, or indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now notice this, brothers and sisters. Paul, as a good Jewish uh, person is talking about the concept of the one true God. And, but as my, uh, one of my professors in the PhD program at Liberty University, Dr. Gary Habermas says, Paul puts Jesus Christ in the Jewish Shema. In fact, if you notice, when you read Paul, you'll see Paul will very rarely mention God without mentioning Jesus Christ, our Lord, just after that. 
And so what does that tell us? This pretextual confession or a concept of God as one, very early, before this letter, Paul already views Jesus as divine, as God. Again, it's not a later development out here. Rather, it's in the earliest material we have from the Christians about what they believed about Jesus. What did they believe about Jesus? He was divine and they worshiped him already in the first decades of the church. I won't read 1 Corinthians 15 because we already had it read, but I just want to say a few things to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. This is the most obvious pretextual creed or confession. I think even, even without being a scholar, you could tell because Paul basically says, for I delivered unto you that which I received. So he already has given this to them, probably when he was there in Corinth preaching, he has already delivered this to them. He had received it, and they already believed it and stood on it. But look at at what he says here in verse 1. Paul passed it on, and they had already believed it prior to receiving this letter. Verse 3, Paul received it. That means Paul didn't invent it. This isn't something that Paul is making up as he's writing. He's affirming what they the faith that they already share in common. Because some skeptics, like the late Gerd Ludemann, tried to suggest that Paul invented the resurrection, that it was his idea and that he was able to convince the other apostles to believe in it. But Paul definitely disagrees with that notion here when he says, you've already believed this message. You already stand in this. What is it again? Core gospel material. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he's buried. He's resurrected according to the scriptures. And then we have lists of resurrection appearances where he mentions even 500 who are, most of them are still alive. And so in other words, Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They're still here among us. Put this to the test. And if Paul, including this pretextual creed, were to do that and it weren't true, he has just He's just shot himself in the foot because they could say, well, we don't believe that. They could go test it out. And where are these 500? They're nowhere to be found. But Paul could do this. Why? Because there were that many witnesses to Jesus's resurrection. And here's the thing. Um, There was this group in the uh, 70s and 80s known as the Jesus Seminar. Has anybody heard of the Jesus Seminar? They were a skeptical group uh, of of of. uh, progressive scholars and some other people, some other prominent figures who would, uh, who were pretty skeptical of Jesus and they would, they would kind of meet together and vote on whether or not they believed uh, a verse in the Bible about Jesus was true, whether or not Jesus actually said this or, or did this. Even the Jesus seminar, this very skeptical group, when talking about this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, they date this pretextual confession to within 18 months of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, they don't believe the content therein. They don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave. But they even they say, yeah, that goes back to within a year or two of Jesus. Even the skeptical group, the Jesus Seminar, admits that. In fact, one scholar, and he's not, he didn't belong to this group. This guy was a, a much stronger believer by the name Richard Bauckham. He says, because our, you know, our skeptic friends, they want to say that 
this worship of Jesus is a later development, Richard Bauckham says, no, no, no. The earliest Christology, that is what we believe about Jesus, the teachings about Jesus, the earliest Christology is actually the highest Christology. The earliest information we have about Jesus, they were already worshiping him and treating him as divine. This was not a later development or invention by the church. We look at two more. This one was believed in Philippians chapter 2 to be a hymn. It was believed to be in the form of a song that they sung, and they believe Paul sort of drops it into his letter here in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, many commentators will refer to this as the Christ hymn. Philippians 2, I'll start with verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the core gospel material that you and I affirm. Who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus is divine. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There we have the crucifixion. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did the early church believe about Jesus Christ? They were singing hymns to him. They were worshiping him. When? In the earliest decades of the church. The earliest information we have about Jesus from the church is they believed he was God and they worshipped him. Again, this wasn't a later development like skeptical, critical scholars suggest. And I include one more, one final one here from one of Peter's letters, so you don't think that Paul's the only one who includes these things. We go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And Peter writes this, or includes this, which they believe, which scholars believe this is a pretextual creed or confession, charismatic material that the church was talking about, and Peter puts it in his letter here. Verse 18, For Christ also died for sins, once and for all, the just for the unjust. You can sort of feel the bullet points there, yeah? And so that he might bring to us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There it is. Crucifixion, resurrection, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There we see it again. The Christ died for our sins. He's resurrected. Baptism by immersion. Jesus is at the right hand of power. Jesus is divine. Again, what is the earliest material we have about Jesus Christ? That comes from the first decades of the church, that the church believed he was God, he was divine, that they worshipped him. 
that they believe that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was resurrected, that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he's coming back. Brothers and sisters, what did the early church believe about Jesus? The same exact thing that you and I do today. So when our skeptic friends come and they want to tell us that that this has been corrupted and been changed over the centuries, guess what? The burden of proof isn't on our shoulders, it's on theirs. And we can lovingly and gently point this out to them and say, oh, really, have you examined the earliest material that we have about Jesus? Because this is it, brothers and sisters. And when our skeptic friends want to tell us, well, no, Jesus didn't really do the things that that, that we're told about in the Bible. Um, and, and then when they want to try to undermine our faith in the gospel and Christianity, this is what they're up against. This is what you have to undermine. And the evidence is so good because it's so early. And like I said, the Bible just isn't one book. It's a collection of testimonies. It's multiply attested about these things. The evidence is, is overwhelming about what the early church believed about Jesus, what Jesus did for us, and we can stand on this firm foundation. Now, maybe you're here today and, and you're a believer and you want to share your faith with Jesus Christ. I, I urge you, I pray, think about these things, dig into some of these things and ask yourself, how can you bring this into those conversations with your friends with your skeptical friends, with your non-believing family members, co-workers, neighbors, and friends. Or perhaps you're here and you're just kind of new to things, checking things out. Well, I know that people at this church, Chris or Ben and others, would love to talk about these things with you, would love to dig deeper into God's word and into the evidence for Jesus Christ, for the gospel, where you can, where you can Really test it and see just how good the evidence for the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So consider those things. I'll close this in prayer and we will continue our worship. Father God, you are awesome. You give us so many good reasons to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Give us your word. You give us multiple lines of evidence and attestation. Lord, thank you for the early church that faithfully preserved the gospel that you've given us, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we don't have to face eternity without hope. And thank you that you raised him from the grave, Lord, so that we can have hope of life after death, hope that the whole world needs to hear, Lord. And thank you for the promise that Jesus, your son, Father, will come again and that we will be with him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name.